You're listening to a sermon from Metro North Church in Goose Creek, South Carolina. If you'd like to connect with us, then visit us online at metronorthchurch.com. Good morning. Uh, As I was reflecting on the passage that I was assigned this week, I I couldn't help think that uh, even though we have uh, people in Spain on mission on a mission trip, and we've had people in Orangeburg on a mission trip. When you don't have a senior pastor, it's really easy to sort of feel awkward. Like it's it's an awkward time in a church's life quite often. And um, at a number of churches that I've been at where we've been without a pastor, it's sort of felt like just this time that we're in limbo. And what what are we going to do? What are we doing right now and it doesn't feel as driven and focused um, as it would if you had a senior pastor saying of, of uh, you know, your vision for the church each week. Um, but in, in all, um, it, it was interesting for me that that is ac- exactly the situation that um, the passage that I was assigned deals with. Um, we're in Titus chapter 3 this week. And um, basically, when Paul gets out of jail in A.D. Uh, 61, he immediately takes Titus, and they go to evangelize and then plant a church on the Greek island of Crete. And this letter is written a year or two later after Paul had, uh, you know, fully, you know, sort of shared the gospel, and they had planted this church, and Paul has gone to Ephesus, and, and he's writing this letter to Titus, obviously, um, uh, and Titus, was, he was instructing Titus to set things in order in Crete, and, and that Titus would do this by installing elders who fit all the necessary requirements by, and, and by preaching the right doctrines of the gospel. And that, in that way, the church would be on mission. They would be a light to the nations. And um, so those two things… Um, would lead people in the church to be, and this becomes an emphasis in, in this letter, to be self-controlled and full of good works, um, and thus be a light to other people on the island of Crete. Um, now, why would this be such a great wit- witness to the Cretans, being self-controlled and, and, and doing lots of good works? Well, if you'll look with me at uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, I need to give just a little bit of quick background before uh, we look at uh, our our passage in chapter 3. Here Paul says, one of the Cretans, and by the way, I just love saying Cretans. Um, Anyway, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Crete, oh, and by the way, that guy's name is Epimenides, the prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and then he he goes, this testimony is true. Oh, my gosh. Dang, Paul. Uh, That's cold. Um, Using one of their own philosophers to shame them. You know, I I love getting to teach Titus because my wife is half Greek, and some of her relatives live on Crete. And the woman who she's named after, Aspasia, uh, owns a hotel there. And uh, I love saying, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Um, 
But the reason that Paul is urging the church to be self-controlled and full of good works is because the brilliance of a diamond stands out best against the backdrop of that black velvet, you know, that jewelers always have on hand when they want to show them to you, right? And Crete is that black, dark background. And so Christians, people who have become followers of Christ, can be these beautiful diamonds that shine out to this uh, Cretan society. Okay, so then second thing that we need to look at contextually. Uh, and, and we learn in chapter 1 that there were people that threatened the church that were teaching wrong doctrines, undermining the authority of the church's leaders, and leading people in the church into all kinds of sin. And in chapter 1, verse 16, excellent job, um, uh, Paul calls them out and exposes their phoniness. And he says, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. So, the, the church's witness was being injured or was threatened, you know, um, by these false teachers. And where's the proof that they were false? Their behavior, their lifestyles, their works were testimony that they didn't really know God. They professed to know God by their words, but they denied Him by their actions. And this was a big problem when the church is supposed to stand out in culture by the way that they live. All right, so then in chapter 2, the final thing that we need to, to look at contextually, Paul speaks to several different subsets of people in the church about important aspects of their behavior. He speaks to older men, then he speaks to older women, then he speaks to younger women, then he speaks to younger men, and eventually, lastly, he gets to bond servants or slaves. And the statement he makes to the bond servants includes one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. It doesn't just apply to bond servants but really to all of us. Um, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, uh, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of, our, of God our Savior. To adorn is to put on something, like jewelry or clothing, that is meant to beautify, right? So, Paul is saying that our behavior is dressing ourselves, adorning ourselves with what we believe. It's the opposite of professing to know God, but then denying Him by our works. How you behave is what you believe in any given moment. And so, I, I want my brooch… <laughs> or my earrings, or whatever it is, to be the doctrine of Jesus in my behavior. So, with these, in verses, these verses in mind, look at our passage for today, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Beginning in verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and, and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The flower fades, and the grass withers, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. Now, the the problem of our passage today is that people easily profess something noble. We'll profess noble things all the time, but we then turn around and practice another thing that completely denies that profession. People will easily profess something noble only to practice another thing that completely denies their profession. What's that called? You guys are being quiet. What's, the, what's that called? Hypocrisy. Thank you. And who is disliked more than a hypocrite? Very few people, right? You might say politicians. And that's because they're acting like hypocrites, Right? You also might say Christians, and why? Because of their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a big deal for every generation, but it's an especially huge deal for millennials and Gen Z kids that I have to deal with. Youth culture has spawned all kinds of crazy slang terms, all right? Slang terms like, I mean, we used to have like I don't know, like when Happy Days was on, there was a, you know, or uh, when I was a kid in the 80s, we had where's the beef, but today there's like millions of slang terms, and, you know, things like yeet, um, or yeet, yeet, um, as they say, Um, but uh, there are numerous, I mean, many, many slang terms for hypocrite. Um, some are sort of funny, like, oh, he's a vegan misogynist, um, which is like, oh, he loves animals, but he treats women terrible. Um, that, that's a slang term, um, vegan misogynist. Clock that one away. You'll be able to use it someday. Um, or there's uh, hippocritopotamus, um, like a really big hypocrite, you know, like hippopotamus. And, anyway, um, and then, then there's uh, hypocritidemic. Uh, like it's an endemic, it's a, it's a problem, um, it's going crazy, uh, it's spreading like crazy. Um, and do you guys know what the word receipt means? I mean, high school kids know this. Receipts, I mean, my son is so embarrassed at me right now. But receipts are evidence of a person's hypocrisy pulled from past social media or text conversations. Oh, I got receipts on them. Mm. Okay? Does that make sense? Did I, did I use that right, young people? All right, thanks. So, but an alarming number of other slang terms for hypocrite are not so funny to me or to the church. Um, like hypocristian, did you know in normal culture, not even in the church, in normal culture, slang term for a hypocrite is Pharisee? and it's specifically talking about a Christian. 
Um, there's uh, another term that they use for hypocrite is focus on the family. Another term they use is pharisaical. Another term is a Jimmy Swaggart. Another term is churchian. Like instead of Christian, it's like, oh, they're a churchian that like they go to church. With them. Um, there's the Christian YouTuber, like one word. <laughs> Christian YouTuber is another word for hypocrite. Uh, conservative Christian and the hypocreature, which is like preacher and hypocrite mixed. You guys, we have a problem. But it's not like Christians are hypocrites on purpose. Like, no one is a hypocrite on purpose, right? Are hypocrites usually aware of their hypocrisy? No. So why? Because we are really good at self-deception. We deceive ourselves by uh, avoiding looking inward, you know, procrastinating at self-reflection. I get so busy, I don't have to think about myself. Um, Or um, by rationalizing our actions, like coming up with reasons for the things that we do that aren't the real reasons. Um, Or, you know, like uh, you might say, oh, well, that's why we're doing this this series on side-by-side. You know, we need to be in community, right? But the simple answer of community, that's also a trap. Um, I've been reading a book called I Told Me So. Uh, It's this brilliant book by a Christian philosopher about uh, the Christian life and self-deception. And uh, in like chapter five, he gets into how to actually self-deception can actually grow in groups. And he he said... um, Community can be extremely effective in affirming and adding to our self-deception. We can tend to surround ourselves with people who are equally committed to the concealment of a particular sin, of the, the particular sin that we are. And I thought, oh. And they say that's called groupthink. Um, we can surround ourselves with subordinates who would be too intimidated to confront us. We can be a part of a codependent group uh, that has patterns of unsaid, we don't talk about that subject. No, nobody says out loud, we don't talk about that subject. But everybody knows it's a rule. Um, So if self-deception is so prevalent, both in our individual hearts and in our groups, what do we need in order to avoid hypocrisy? What do we need to be able to, as the people of God, adorn ourselves with the doctrine of our Savior? Because we have a witness, whether we're in between pastors or have one, right? How can we be a witness to the world? How can we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior? Um. So, this passage says three things. Paul says three things to, t- to Titus. And so, the, the, the main theme is that in order to adorn ourselves with the doctrine of our Savior, we need to be regularly, not just in community, but we need to be regularly, number one, reminded of our essential behaviors. 
we need to be reminded of our essential behaviors. What are the, 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 the behaviors? I've broken into three categories. Submission, good works, and ennobling words. Uh, what do I mean? Well, submission, right? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. That's verse 1. To authorities, why? What's the purpose? In 1 Peter 2, 13, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors uh, as sent by him to punish those who, would, who do evil to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of the God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So, Peter says to the people he's writing, authorities are in place sovereignly to punish evil and to praise good. And a good reputation among and with authorities silences foolish people who criticize Christians. John Christian, I mean, sorry, John Calvin uh, used pretty strong words about submission to authorities. And I, I even, like, I don't even like the word submission coming out of my mouth. I'm at this super liberal school. But um, he, Calvin's used really strong words, and he, and he said uh, about this verse, for since they have been appointed for the preservation of mankind, he who desires to have them removed or shakes off their yoke is an enemy of equity and justice and is therefore devoid of all humanity. Jews in the first century were known for their uprisings and their general disdain for authorities in the cities in which they lived across the Mediterranean. So, this made lo local magistrates weary of them. But Christians were on mission to reach all people with the gospel. So, they needed to have a positive reputation with civic leaders and authorities. And, uh, you know, here, then it's, after it says submission to all authorities, uh, then it says an obedience. Why obedience? Well, Paul, what's the difference between submission and obedience? Earlier in the letter, there is much said about obedience to God. And so here he's likely adding on obe obedience as a, as a reminder that in submitting to authorities, they're really being obedient ultimately to God. You're not just following laws of the state or respecting elders or your parents or whoever. You're being obedient to God when you do that. Why is that a part of, of redemption? Why is that a part of our witness? Submission is dying to self. It's saying, I don't need to control my life. Submission is trusting God's sovereignty in our lives. So, does this mean that you can't give feedback to leaders? No, of course not. You can write to your senator or speak to your elder or ask your parent why they have certain policies in place or yada, 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 right? But it is an important part of our witness, submission. We never bring that up. Why is it so hard? Why do we need to be reminded to submit to authorities, whether government, work, church, home? Ultimately, here's what it is. We all crave control. 
My plan is better. That's exactly what Adam and Eve craved in the garden. They thought God was holding out on them. They thought He was stealing their dignity. Their plan was better. In our present-day culture, it's more and more widely accepted that we each have our own truth. Someone says something definitively, and you're like, oh, that's your truth. I've got my truth. And if we each have our own truth, then we don't have to submit to anyone. Additionally, people are, are cynical about authority figures. We've seen people fail or screw up before. So we say, unless you show me that they're worthy, there's no way that I'll submit to them. That's why Christians are increasingly slow to join churches. Or they choose to just attend but never become members. That's because of a cynicism about authority. How often would you say that you think about submitting to authorities for God's sake? How often does that come up in your mind? Oh, I need to submit for the Lord's sake, for our witness to authorities. We're Americans. We don't submit. We pride ourselves on, you know, like being the Marlboro man, you know, on the, you know, where he's, in the 1970s and 80s, um, there were always these big, um, things when you would drive across America. What are they called on the side of the road? Billboards, Billboards, yeah. And you've got the marble man sitting like he's like definitely in like Idaho or somewhere he's on a horse with a hat. The ruler of his domain, right? That's, that's, forget authorities. I'm American. Which authority figures in your life do you fail to submit to? Or do you tend to undermine? Second, in verse 1, it goes from submitting authorities and obedience to the next category of, from submission is good works. Verse 1, ready for every good work. And I, I, I like to, I wrote ready to pounce. Is that on the outline? No, it's all, no, just good works. Um, But, um, okay, just to give you an idea of of what is being intended here in the Greek, um, let me give an illustration. Um, I used to be a youth minister many eons ago, and there were two high school guys that I went and played disc golf with one day. And after we were done, we were, like, totally exhausted. It was, you know, 90 degrees. We were in my car. We pulled up to a busy um, stoplight, and there were tons of cars in front of us and all around us. And, um, and there was an Outback Steakhouse on the right. And a person's car had broken down, and they had hopped out of their car, and they were, like, trying to push their car and steer it at the same time into this parking lot. And I'm like... Uh, one of these students said, um, oh, hey, Danny, we got to go. Let's, let's help them push their car. And, and I was like, no, 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 the, the light's going to change. He, and they looked at me, and they were like, nah. And these two high school students jumped out of the car in the middle of the se- intersection and started helping push this person's car into the parking lot. And they got it in the parking lot. And they ran back, and just as the light turned green, they hopped in the car. And there I was feeling... 
They were ready to pounce. Ready for every good work, not me. Not me. Paul's telling Titus, here is a huge aspect. Here is an important behavior for our witness. Are you ready for every good work? One commentator noted that based on the context, this command should necessarily include being prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community. Not just other Christians, you know, but the welfare of the community. We must not stand coldly aloof, he said, from praiseworthy enterprises of government, but show good public spirit, thus proving that Christianity is a constructive force for society. That's why Jeremiah 29 Verse 7 says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. It seems pretty obvious that being ready to pounce on opportunities to do good works is a part of redemption and a big part of a Christian witness. But the question, the better question might be, why is being ready for every good work so hard? And I I immediately wrote when I was asking that question of myself, I said, because I'm so busy. Well, what am I so busy doing? Other works. Works of another kind. Really, it's just self-absorption. Good works is actually serving something outside of yourself. So then the third one that he lays out, the third behavior, is ennobling words. And, you know, in, in verse 2, I've sort of summarized all of verse 2 with ennobling words. So you've heard the word noble, so words that highlight someone's nobility, um, their dignity. Verse 2 adds to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak no evil. Again, Calvin said, we know that there is nothing to which the disposition of every man is more prone than to despise others in comparison of himself. Ugh. The consequence is that many are proud of their gifts of God, and this is accompanied by contempt for the, their brethren, which is immediately followed by insult. Here, therefore, um, he therefore forbids Christians uh, this is he speaking of Paul, to glory over others or to reproach them, whatever may be their own superior excellence. Secondly, he says, avoid quarreling. And did you know that the Greek word here is amacho? Like you've heard of macho, like macho Randy Man Savage, but there's amacho here, and it's the opposite, Right? As Christians, we don't need to act like, you know, in a, in a macho fashion, trying to prove that no one can shove us around. We shouldn't take offense easily. If we're wronged, we should try to conciliate. And it's more important to maintain good relations with your neighbor than to stand up for your rights. That's what he's saying. 
Ennobling words are so important to our witness. And so after, he says, avoiding quarreling, Paul says to be gentle. And if we're going to avoid quarreling, then gentleness is like the first step in that direction. Um, One commentator noted that those who are excessively severe and who have bad tempers carry with them a fire that kindles quarreling. And then the, the fourth part of ennobling words is courtesy toward all. <laughs> you know when I'm not courteous? When I'm really focused on myself. I think we all tend to be. Why are ennobling words so difficult for us? It's because in that moment, you are being required to not protect your self-interests, to not think better of yourself than someone else, to not be condescending, to not live out of the comparisons you make between yourself and someone else, to not try to justify yourself with others. And we speak evil of others when someone threatens something about us. Or we need to justify ourselves in light of others. But even if they speak evil of us, it doesn't mean that we can respond with venom ourselves. So, what do ennobling words accomplish, really? They give the other person dignity. And they show that dignity to those around us. And they say, our ennobling words say to people around us, this person who claims that Jesus loves the world and gave his life for our sins, he believes that I'm someone that Jesus could love. So we need to be reminded, not just be in community, we need to be reminded of essential behaviors, submission to authority, ready for good works, ennobling words. Do you feel inspired by these two verses? Are you ready to go? I'm not. I'm so exhausted from looking at those. That's why we need to be reminded of what's in verse 3, which is uh, also a little scary. But in verse 3, um, we, I've, I've titled it, we need to be reminded, in order for us to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, we need to be reminded of our low-life history. Verse 3 starts out, for we ourselves were once. Don't forget your past, he's saying. Again, Calvin, who I found to be the best commentator on on Titus, said, nothing is better adapted to subdue our pride and at the same time to moderate our severity than when it is shown that everything that we turn against others may fall back on our own head. For he forgives easily who is compelled to beg for pardon in return. And indeed, ignorance of our own faults is the only cause that renders us unwilling to forgive our brethren. You know what we forget? Our stinking low-life history. Paul breaks this down into these three same categories. A failure to submit. Look at these first three things in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, and led astray. You were foolish, not, not understanding, 
We were unwise. There was a time you did not acknowledge God, and your foolish heart was darkened. You thought you were wise, but you were really acting like a fool. Um, I recently read an email from years ago that I remembered thinking was pretty thoughtful and, and caring and above reproach. But as I read over it, I realized how ignorant and unfair and undignifying the things I had said in it really were. I had been a fool. I had lacked understanding. Secondly, disobedient means, you know, not compliant. There was a time when you hated the thought of submission or obedience to any authority, including God, whether you were two years old or 20. There was a time when you were hell-bent on doing things your own way. And then thirdly, in submission, failure to submit, you were led astray, away from truth and the path of virtue. Each of us has been led by others in our past into sin. We followed fools into foolishness, away from truth and away from virtue. That's not just the people you have to have nice words for and do good works for and submit to. That was you. Second thing, not only did we fail to submit, but we failed to do good. Um, the failure to do good works. You were slaves to passions and pleasures, and you passed your days in malice and envy, verse 3. You were slaves to your own passions and pleasures, and you spent your, you passed your days in malice and in envy. What's that? A focus. First, we've got to focus on self, being slaves to passions and pleasures. What are, what are our knee-jerk behaviors that are so inconsiderate of others is because we're self-obsessed. Why do I continue to fail to take the, my shoes upstairs and put them in my closet instead of leaving them on the steps? For the first five years of marriage. What was that? Self-obsession. My knee-jerk behaviors. I didn't mean to be inconsiderate. I just was. When I'm behaving compulsively, I'm failing to do good. Then also in our past, in our low-life past, we... We haven't just focused on self, we've focused on others, passing our days in malice and envy. What is that? Stewing over someone who has something that you don't have, or someone that you feel has wronged you, or stewing over someone who has overlooked you. You've done that. I've done that. That you need to remember your low-life past, Paul's saying. And then we've also failed with our words. We finally see in verse 3, our failure in the past uh, falls into this third category of ennobling words, or the opposite, really. We were, we were hated by others and hating one another. Wait, why is that about ennobling words? Hated by others. Because in your malice or self-absorption, you insulted or withheld dignity, 
or spoke insensitively about others, and the injury of your own words led someone to then disdain you. <laughs> that guy's a jerk. He is so harsh. Or hating one another. You were so bent on lifting yourself up above others out of malice or envy, you started quarrels with them. You see why he's saying here, you need to be reminded you once were like this. If we're not reminded of our low-life history, we will think that we're inherently better than the Cretans around us. But we're all Cretans. That's the point. Aspa, I apologize to your aunt. My brother, who is not walking with the Lord, um, when we were probably in our mid-20s, people would ask about our childhood, and he would share these terrifying, awful stories of me being such an abusive brother and bullying him. I, I don't remember all that stuff, really. But then he would say, but until Danny became a Christian, and then it changed. And I used to think, oh, you know what the value of that story is? Like, yeah, God really changed me. No, the value of that story is to remind me I used of my low-life history. There is no difference between your neighbor or your sibling or your parent or your enemy and you who's not a Christian, who is a Cretan, and who you were. Are you motivated yet? I'm convicted, but I'm not motivated, really. So here, verses 4 through 7, that's, we get the motivation. Um, in verses 4 through 7, we are reminded not just of our low-life history, but we're reminded of our ludicrous stature. It's ludicrous. Let me, let me just go into it a little bit. Where do we get this stature that we're given in Christ? Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Let me just stop there. The goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. Goodness is God's moral goodness, His integrity. That's God's character. It's goodness. How far away is that from you? How far is it from me? especially when I've been reminded of my low-life history. He is good. He is so other. And then it says loving kindness, uh, which is often translated as benevolence. Kindness means to do good to others in a way not dependent on their character, not dependent on their conduct, and not on their responses to you. That's kindness. But um, Like, I'll give you an example of what kindness is. Um, These college girls were once telling me about a time that they ran over something big on the highway and they broke down and they were on the side of the highway and a stranger came and changed their tire. And then after they fixed the tire, they realized, oh, um, that part of the wheel was broken too. 
and they weren't going to be able to. So this stranger said, oh, I'll drive you to a gas station. And I was like, what are you doing? You just got into a stranger's car on I-26 and to ride to a gas station and you're two college girls? What are you thinking? And they were like, oh, well, it turned out great. But the, this person, that's kindness. Like, they didn't have to stop, by, you know, stop and, you know, they, they changed their tire. But then when the tire didn't work, then they, like, took them the extra mile. You know, that's, that was, that's kindness. But then he adds loving. He, it says loving kindness here. Loving kindness implies a kindness that involves patience when someone has wronged you. God, out of his loving kindness, when we spent so much of our lives wronging him, what did he do? Well, let's see why he gave us this stature. Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's like definitely not because I'm better, but it's like purely mercy that he did it. We secretly think, and I think this all the time subconsciously, that our status with God depends on our work. How am I doing with God? There's something in me that I believe is smarter, more moral, more clear-sighted than my family members, friends, and neighbors that don't know him. Nope, not true. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Verse 5. It's not true. According to his own mercy. So how are we saved by mercy? This is where we, you know, plug in so naturally. Oh, yeah, yeah. According to his mercy, Jesus died for our sins. Right? No, he didn't say that here. We normally think, oh, Jesus died for our sins, and that's so according to his mercy. Here he says, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He says, he's hitting a different aspect of our salvation, the Holy Spirit. He regenerated you, and He renewed you. What does that mean? Regeneration means new birth, recreation, um, the production of a new life. So, we are born again. We are cleansed, washed by new birth from our old dirty life. But you still might be tempted to say, yeah, 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 I was born again when I believed in Jesus. And deep down subconsciously, you might be saying, yeah, that was me and I was smart enough to believe, and so then I was regenerated. No, that's not how regeneration works. When Jesus is speaking about being born again to Nicodemus in John 3, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You don't get to spirit by your flesh. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he describes the Holy Spirit like the wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit regenerated you and gave you new life. in order to become a son or daughter of God. And then, it just doesn't say regeneration, it says renewal. What is renewal? It's a renovation, a complete change for the better. So it's not just a new life, it's like upgraded. <laughs> Your newness is an improvedness. I like that. That was good. Um, but the Holy Spirit lives in us now. And we're renewed and being renewed in the image and likeness of Christ our Savior. So um, we had like $10,000 worth of, um, uh, well, more than that, of um, water damage to our house when um, the washing machine broke and it, we had to get all new floors and it was really, really stressful, um, especially where I was, you know, fighting the insurance company. But then, there, like the other day, I was... Aspa had pulled up the rug to, like, clean for a reason. I looked, and I looked at those new floors. I was like, I like our house better now. This looks, this is great. Not only were you given new life, but you were made qualitatively different. The Holy Spirit, not of your own work, the Holy Spirit regenerated in it. He renewed you. For what? Danny, what is this ridiculous stature? Look at verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the payoff right here. You and me, we are heirs. Bible says that we're heirs of two big things. One is we are heirs of God, and two, we are heirs of the world, co-heirs with Christ. Let me explain that real quickly. What are the two things that people long for the most? I want this perfect relationship, you know, that's, that's going to complete me. Um, and so, you know, I have this amazing wife. I legitimately can, can say that. And um, we went away for a week to Asheville, and you know what? Halfway through that week, I was thinking, I need some time alone. And she's awesome. She doesn't complete me. And, you know, granted, you know, I'll go away to General Assembly next week, and I'll miss her a ton, and, you know, you know I'll be really excited to come home and see her. But we were made for something more intimate even. We are heirs of God, Him personally, relationally fulfilled. And what's the other thing that we struggle so much with? Why, why do we compare ourselves with others, what they got? We are heirs not because we are super thrifty and plan ahead. We are heirs of the earth with Jesus. Heirs of God and heirs with Christ of the world. Let me just sort of explain what that means to, to the rest of, of this. 
once you recognize your ridiculous stature, like what does an heir do? Nothing. They just inherit. So, uh, you know, during finals weeks, I'll have, I have especially this one student who is really, really bright, but they have terrible anxiety uh, about classes and grades. And so, right before finals week, I met with this girl, and I was like, okay, so, how are you doing? Oh, I'm falling to pieces. You know, everything's terrible. I'm like, okay, yeah, I figured. So, tell me, um, what's so terrible? Like, go, go through all these things. And, and she was just like, oh, this, you know, I'm never going to be able to do, to do this biochemistry exam. It's so unbelievably difficult that I could, yeah, I, I know that I couldn't do biochemistry. She's smart. I'm not. But she's, like, freaking out about this. And, and I'm like, well, I don't care how you do on the biochemistry exam. I, I just care. Are you going to, like, honor the Lord by studying? She was like, well, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's all. And she was like, but what if I fail? And I was like, what if you fail? She was like, well, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to become a doctor. And okay, well, what if you can't become a doctor? Well, then I'm, what am I going to do? I'm like, you're going to be a daughter of the king, just like you are right now. What are you going to inherit? Anything different? No. We're heirs. If you're not a Christian, perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning, this makes sense. It is that good. Let me explain how all three of these points that Paul shares work together. You can't have any one of them without the other. If you have two of them, you fail. So, if you have these um, uh, behaviors that are excellent, right, that, that are incredible witness, but um, uh, how is your witness going to be if you don't see your uh, low-life past? You're going to think that you did those on your own, that you're pretty great, and then you're going to fall apart. You're going to fail. Well, what, what if you, like, see that you can't accomplish those behaviors, and then you, you, you remember your low-life history, but you don't remember that you're an heir? This ludicrous stature that you have from Christ. Oh, you're going to fall, fall under the weight. <laughs> what if you have the both, you, you, know, un, you understand that you're an heir, and you see these behaviors that you want to do, but you don't remember your low-life history? Oh, you know what? You're going to fail terribly because you're going to think you're better. You need all three, and you need to be reminded of all three. When Coleman was five, um, he's getting too old for me to do illustrations. I'm going to start embarrassing him. He's my son. But when Coleman was five or, or five or six, I was putting together a basketball net for him. Um, in our, and, and you have to realize that Coleman is the only grandchild on either side of our family, and he's our only child. So he, Christmas is like, oh, yeah. Everything. He, he knows no Christmas where he didn't get everything he could ever imagine because of these grandparents and, and uncles. And, you know, and Coleman, as an only child, is like, I mean, we drive him crazy always wanting to ask him how he's doing, and, you know, like all that stuff, right? And 
When he was five or six, um, I was putting together this basketball rim for him, and it was a typical uh, hot summer day in Charleston, and I was just miserable, like trying to put it together, you know, that I'm not good, I'm not handy. And uh, this little girl who was living with her grandmother down the street started, came over to our house, and she and Coleman started talking, and she would ask me a million questions on this 95-degree day. You know, it's one of those, like, 107 heat index days, and I'm, like, cranking stuff, and I'm like, oh, that is a bolt, you know, like, and, and I'm really frustrated. I just really want it to be over, and I want her to go away. She's slowing me down. She's, like, using my hammer to just hammer on stuff, and, and she and Coleman are talking, and, and, and he says, somehow, it, he asks her a number of questions that lead, it, that lead her to say, oh, I don't have a Bible. And he was like, you don't have a Bible. And he's like, oh, gosh, that's so, that's terrible. Hold on a second. And he runs inside. And, you know, we, you know, me being a minister, he has four, like, Bibles that we were reading from, you know, four different children's Bibles. And he just, like, he picked out the Jesus Storybook Bible, and he brought it out to this little girl. And here I am working away, and he comes out, and he says, you need to have this. And he opens it up to her and starts sharing with her this one story that he thinks is really amazing. And I'm cranking, and then I'm like, oh. Here was a kid who knew he was an heir. So his words were ennobling. He, he gave her incredible dignity. When in my mind I was thinking, kid, shut up. Here was a kid who because... He, he didn't know a day when he didn't have everything he would ever need, was so quick and ready to do good work. And here was a kid who was obedient to God when his dad was a failure. He's probably not like that today. I don't want you to think he's great, but That is what happens when you believe that you're an heir, not of your own work. Nothing you did. The Holy Spirit gave you new life. We need to be reminded. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you place people in our lives? Would you allow us to be people in our brothers' and sisters' lives here who aren't just community? Help us to remind each other and help us to be reminded. Remind us of these essential behaviors that we forget so quickly. Remind us of our low life history, that we are Cretans. And remind us of our ridiculous stature as heirs of your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.